Uh, just want to invite you with us this morning into, uh, into your Bibles, if you want to turn in your scripture with me, if you have it with you, into the Gospel of Matthew and take out your sermon notes. Um, we did the work, I noticed this morning, we did the work for you. All your blanks are already filled in, so you can just try and do the very, I mean, you can, we, we're really taking advantage of the Sabbath. We're making sure you don't have to do any extra work today, so those things, so all the suspense of the message is gone today. Um, if you're listening to our podcasts, uh, if you're tuning and you're listening to our podcast, I want you to do something right now. If you're listening to this podcast message and you have not listened to last week's message called Jesus Teaches in the Temple, pause the podcast right now and download that one first. You are, this will really disappoint you if you compare it to last week. Pastor Stewart preached an amazing message last week on Jesus teaching in the temple. Parables are really, really, really difficult to teach, and they're really, really, really difficult to understand. And I sat here just absolutely transfixed last week as he began. God, I love sitting under Pastor Stewart's teaching. He's so gifted by God to be able to take things and make them easy for us to understand. And that is just an awesome message. So please go back and listen to that one. Then you can come and listen to this one later on, but listen to that one first. We're, we're kind of wrapping up our series, Two Weeks to Live Today. We're focusing on the last 14 days of Jesus's life and asking the question, what can we learn about Jesus's life, understanding that he knew he was in the last 14 days of his life? So we started a couple weeks ago, we started 14 days out when Jesus went to a funeral, and we talked about that. Then we fast-forwarded the story to when Jesus had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, came down from the Mount of Olives, and we talked about Jesus enters Jerusalem. That's actually the part of the Holy Week that we're at today. So chronologically in our calendar, today's usually the day we talk about Palm Sunday. That's why you got a palm frond on the way in, just as a little emblem and a little token to remind you about what Jesus did when he came to that part of the story. We talked about that two weeks ago. Last week, we followed the story a few more days further and figured out, you know, a few days before Jesus was crucified, he actually taught in the temple. And this week, we're going to talk about really we're going to go 12 hours when Jesus had 12 hours left to live we're going to go right to that part of the story when Jesus ate with his disciples you see Jesus Matthew tells us that Jesus knew something about his life you and I don't know a year before Jesus died Matthew tells us in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus began to speak very plainly to people that he was going to die at a specific time, in a specific place, at the hands of specific people. Jesus knew one year before he died, at least a year before he died, the who, the when, and the where of his death. And knowing that, he set his face and his mind on it, and he ran towards that day in his life, which is probably the exact opposite that you and I would do. Now, you and I don't know the where, the when, the why, the who, of our death. We don't know that part of our life yet. A lot of us think we've just got all kinds of time, but here's what we learned about Jesus. He carefully prioritized that last year of your life because when you realize your time is limited, when you realize the clock is ticking down, we start to make better decisions about our time. We start start to make more wise investments in the way that we live our life. So when you realize your days are counting down, you really want to make each day count. That's been the point of the whole series. We're going back to some stories that for some of us are familiar. For many of us that are here this morning, the Bible is a very unfamiliar book to you. You've not read through it. You don't understand it. That's completely okay. We're going to teach you from the Bible this morning and, and bring you into some of that. But these are stories that for the, for the Christian church, if you've been in here for a while, it's probably been, uh, you probably hear these stories about once a year over Easter time. 
Um, but we're looking at him through the lens of saying Jesus knew he was going to die. So what does that tell you about why he said yes to certain things and no to other things? We're going to open up Matthew chapter 26 today, look at verses 26 through 30 briefly. And then at the end of our service, we're going to have uh, communion together. This is a story about Jesus eating with his disciples. And isn't it interesting? If, let me ask you the question. If you knew you had 12 hours left to live and you could have one more meal with anybody you chose, who would you eat with? What would you eat? You wouldn't have to count calories. You have dessert, second and thirds. But if you knew you had 12 hours left to, li- left to live and you could eat with whoever you want and you could eat whatever you want, who would you eat with and what would you eat? Many of us, not all of us, but many of us would say, you know, people in my family. My mom or my dad or my spouse, my sisters, brothers, nieces, nephews, my children. For some of us, it would be friends. Some of us may just want to eat by ourselves. I don't know. The answer would be different for all of us. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, knowing, knowing in advance that he was going to die within 12 hours, by nine, you know, at nine o'clock the next morning, he was going to be on the cross. This evening, he gathers, not with his mom, not with his biological siblings, but with his disciples in celebration of the Passover meal. Let's read together from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. This takes place about three-quarters of the way through the traditional Passover meal. It says, As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it into pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it. This phrase is going to be important. We're going to come back to this later. Take this and eat it, for this is my body. Now, on a certain level, if you just read that very literally, doesn't that sound a little off-putting to you? If you're sitting at my house for dinner, I say, listen, I want want you to eat this cracker. This is really part of my body. That's weird. Sounds like cannibalism. It's kind of gross. I'll just tell you right up front. If I go to your house for dinner and you say, here, you know what? I want you to try some of this. This This is my leg. I'd like you to eat part of it. I'm not eating it. I ain't coming back. We'll refund your tithes and offerings and we'll help you find a new church. This is not the first time Jesus used this type of phraseology. If you think in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, is when Jesus was at the height of his popularity. Lots of people, thousands upon thousands of people were following him around. And he says, unless you you eat of my my flesh and drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. The exact words most people said, that saying is too hard to stomach. Who could do that? And the Bible says in John 6, 66, from that point on, many of his disciples turned their backs on him and never followed him again. So Jesus is saying to them at the Passover meal, and this is not part of the script either. The Passover followed the same words every year for a thousand years, and Jesus is rewriting things on the spot right now and says, take and eat for this is my body. And then he took a cup of wine and he gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And they sang a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's a lot here. And if you've ever received communion, I know know probably the the most common uh, religious background here at Echo Community Church, if we did a survey, probably the the highest percentage we have is, you know, what was your religious affiliation if you had one growing up? Most of us us in the room, probably number one would be Catholic. 
And, uh, you know, I grew up in, I did grow up in an evangelical Pentecostal church. And in both of those churches, communion is very central to the church experience. And so this passage was very familiar for me. I mean, even as a kid, I could probably, this is one of those I could probably quote from memory because I've heard it so many times, familiar words. But as familiar as they are to us, they were shocking and unfamiliar to the people sitting around the table with Jesus. It would be as shocking as someone standing up front and starting to lead us all into the pledge of allegiance to the flag and then changing all of the words or leading us in the Lord's prayer and kind of going off and saying our own thing. Um, Jesus was very much calling an audible here. He was very much changing the liturgy of this Passover meal. For a thousand years, they had said the same thing the same way at this part of the meal. And now Jesus changes the language and all of the disciples sat forward perplexed but yet very much involved in the moment trying to understand what Jesus meant. What was, what was he trying to show us here? Twelve hours before he dies. This is not his first Passover. Growing up as a Jewish boy, he would have had 32 of these under his belt by now. This is the first time we see that he says what he says. What's he trying to show us? What's the big idea here? Well, we filled it in in your notes, but I will read it to you anyway. The big idea is that Jesus' final meal before his death, here's the thing he wants to drive home. He wants us to understand how a lamb can exempt us from divine justice. Up to this point, lots of people have been very confused, found Jesus a little cryptic. They didn't always, he'd teach what we think today is very clear, but the people who heard it thought it was a little unclear. Here Jesus is basically telling them, this is the Passover. This is the day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is the day when the lamb is to be slaughtered and prepared and eaten. And yet the table is empty of a main course. I want you to understand, Jesus is saying, I am, in fact, the lamb that all these other lambs have been pointing towards. And, I, and it's a crazy question. How can a furry little woolly quadruped exempt us from divine judgment? There's a part of that that to people outside of Christianity, and even inside of Christianity, if we really think about it deeply, it's a little hard to believe that somehow... The only way, I mean, think about it. If you were going to invent a religion, and I don't know if you've ever sat around and thought about this, I want to encourage you to dive real deep into that thought stream. Um, you could make a great cult leader, but I don't know that it's something that we should be sitting around. Think about it. If you wanted to just concoct a religion, would you come up with this idea that, look, there is going to be a God and there's going to be human beings, but this God, he's going he's to come and he's going to give justice to everybody. There is a justice system here. And there is no payment for any penalty except death with one exception. If you kill a furry little lamb, that gets you off. You're scot-free. You're, you're exempt. It makes no sense until you study the story and you really dig deep into this. And then it makes, not only does it make a lot of sense, it is the most wonderful message that has ever been sent to anybody anywhere. That we have a God and we have a lamb who has taken our place and has satisfied our punishment, has satisfied our penalty, has taken our place. And Jesus was saying, I am that lamb and I am about to be slaughtered and my blood is about to be spilt in order to take your place so that you can be, if you choose to be, if you choose to take and eat, you can be exempt from divine judgment and have relationship with God the Father. So there's a few verses before this story takes place that I'll just go over briefly. There's so much here, and we taught in depth about it last year. But really, before they get up to the meal, they had to prepare for the Passover. The Passover, the Passover is um, 
It's for ancient Jews and still for Jews today. Passover was an annual meal. It happened every single year in their calendar, and it commemorated a defining moment in the history of the Israel. Now, the, now more than a thousand years before this story takes place, a little bit over a thousand years earlier than that, Israel as a people weren't located in Israel geographically. They were living in Egypt. They were enslaved to Pharaoh, and it was an awful horrible existence of bondage and they suffered and they cried out to the one true God to deliver them and so what God did was he sent a series of plagues of judgments one after another after another after another hoping that that would somehow loosen the grip of Pharaoh on the people and that he would let the people go and then God was his plan was to lead them geographically from Egypt to Israel, the land that he'd prepared of them to occupy as their home. And after each plague, Pharaoh was given an opportunity to change his mind and say, you know what, enough is enough, I'm going to let the people go. But he constantly waffled back and forth and changed his mind and reneged on his promises. So after nine of these plagues, God finally took out the sheath, or unsheathed the sword of divine judgment and said, all right, I'm going to send one more plague. And he let them know in advance what it was. God said, I am going to send an angel of death to visit every house in all the land. Now, you have to catch this. He didn't say, I'm just going to skip over the Jews because they're Jews and they're my people. Every house, whether Egyptian or Jew, was visited that night by an angel of death. And that angel of death was coming for one reason and one reason only. Because there had been sin all over the land, God said, today we're going to judge. Today's the day the consequence is going to be meted out. And, they were, and that angel was assigned to kill the firstborn child of every single household all over the land. Unless, unless those people would put their faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. They'd put their faith in God and say, okay. God said, there's an exception. You can take, and there's a whole lot of theology in the specific type of lamb, but to economize for David, they would take a perfect young lamb that they had, bring him into the house, get attached to the lamb, name the lamb and everything else, and then kill the lamb and take the blood of that innocent animal and put it on the doorpost of their house so that when the angel came by, one of two things would happen. Either the angel would go inside and exact justice on that family by killing the firstborn child or the angel would see that a sacrifice had already been killed and that blood was placed in the door and the angel would pass over that house and go to the next one, hence the term Passover. So in every house in that land that night, keep this in mind, in every single house in Egypt, whether it was an Egyptian house or a Jewish house, there was either a dead child or a dead lamb. Every single house. So, of course, if, if you read through the story, you can see that Israel obeyed God in this. They killed the lamb. They put the, the blood on the door, and the angel passed over. And this was finally, this was finally the turning point. And the Pharaoh said, just go, just go. And, and the, the Israelites left, and there's a lot more of the story there. But they left. They, they made it through. They eventually came to Israel. And every single year after that year, God instructed the people to remember that, remember that through the ceremony and the celebration of the Passover. And so for a thousand years since that event, every single year, every single family, every single Jewish family would gather together and they would have the Passover meal. 
And there's all, there was 15 different steps that you had to follow in preparing it, everything from the way you prepared yourself and your hands and the animals and the food. There was, a, there was a very specific, almost a script, a protocol. It was very important that they repeated the same words every single year so that they kept this memory alive in their hearts, that they passed on the history and awareness of who they were to their children, and that they got this right, that it never left their minds that the reason they had everything they had was because of their faith in God, that they, and they took shelter under the provision made by a substitute sacrifice on their behalf. So with this as the backdrop, Jesus invites his disciples into the Passover meal. The Passover had to be prepared, as I said, a certain way, had a very distinct protocol. There was four different points in the Passover meal when the presider, the person who was overseeing the meal for the family, would stand up with the cup of wine and would repeat something from the scripture and explain to people what was going on and explain to people what the different things on the table represented. And the four different cups of wine represented the four different promises God made in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. I won't read them to you this morning. You can look them up if you want to. The four different promises were for rescue from Egypt, freedom from slavery, slavery, uh, redemption by God's divine power, and for a renewed relationship with God. The passage that we read in the beginning of Matthew chapter 26, most people who study this passage believe it happened after the third cup. And this is when Jesus stood up and uh, the presider was supposed to use words from Deuteronomy chapter 26 to bless the elements, the bread, the herbs, and the lamb that was on the table by explaining how they were symbolic reminders of different parts of the earlier Israelites' captivity and deliverance. For example, what he was supposed to say, he was supposed to stand up and show the bread, and what he would have said is, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. Now, anybody in the room would have probably known what Jesus was supposed to say. This is the bread of affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. This is not what Jesus says. Jesus stands up, and though they could kind of quote along with him, kind of like we know every time Pastor Phil gets up and closes a prayer, he's going to say, and everybody said, amen, and we all say, if I just totally threw you a a curveball and changed it, everybody would listen up. Jesus gets up and breaks away from the script and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. They have never, ever, ever heard anybody say that before. Jesus said several times during the Passover meal, went way off of the script because he was trying to show us and tell us something. Something about the way they had done things for a thousand years was changing before their very eyes. So when Jesus stood up to bless the food, he held up the bread. All Passover meals had bread. He blessed the wine. All Passover meals had wine. But not one of the Gospels ever mentions a main course. Did you ever notice that? You could read this story in any of the Gospels, and none of them ever mentioned the main course. You know what the main course of Passover always was? Lamb. Every single Passover had a main course. Could you imagine having Thanksgiving without the turkey? Well, some of you might do that. Not in my house. There is turkey. There's too much turkey, but there's turkey. The sides are great, but the turkey is the main event. In this particular instance, it's interesting that there is no lamb prepared and placed on the table no one even mentions it what kind of passover would be celebrated without a lamb it wasn't a vegetarian meal in your notes i just wrote a question i had where was the main course and in searching for an answer for that i I stumbled across a book that i have called the uh it talks about the king's cross it's written by tim keller and there's a quote in there that he made that i was just like i can't say it any better than that there was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table Jesus himself was the main course. I want you to see this. Now, I did not grow up Jewish. 
so I don't have the benefit of some of these more obvious details registering with me. But there was no main course. You did not have a Passover meal without the lamb. And Jesus is trying to say, listen, we're not without the main course. I'm the main course. I am the lamb. I am the sinless one. I am the one who will step in and take your place. I am the one who hours from now will be slaughtered and my body will be torn apart and my blood will be spilled. I am that person. And when he says, this is the bread, take and eat. He's talking about not eating the lamb that they prepared, but he's talking symbolically about taking him, receiving him. And taking him into our life. This is the reason why, why John the Baptist, when you, when you read back, what, he said, look. Remember when John sees Jesus for the first time? He says to everybody, look. Jesus, here, here he is. He is the, how did John the Baptist describe Jesus the first time? Do you remember? He called him the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53 writes all about the lamb, the perfect lamb who will, be, who will be sacrificed for our transgression. Here's what Jesus is saying. 12 hours before his death, here's what he's saying to us today. This is my body. This is my blood. It's being poured out for you. He means I'm the one that Isaiah and John spoke about. I am the lamb of God to which all other lambs pointed. The lamb that takes away sin of the world. On the cross, Jesus got everything you and I deserved. He got all the guilt. He got all the brokenness. He took all of the sin of the world upon him. And he loved us so much that he took divine justice on himself so that you and I could be passed over forever. All love, all real life-changing love involves some form of a substitute sacrifice. It really, really, really does. If you love your kids... There's all kinds of things we do that involve sacrifice, and we do it because we love them. I do not love one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish. It bores me. It doesn't intellectually stimulate me. I probably read that book 200 times to my son. Not because I particularly enjoy it, or it's on my reading level. It's close, but it's not quite, you know, I'm just a one or two grade levels above that. You know why I do that? Because at some point, I want my son to learn how to speak, and I want my son to learn language, and I want my son to learn those things. And if I don't at some point make a sacrifice, he's going to pay dearly for that later. I don't particularly just enjoy spending an extra 45 minutes every Sunday morning convincing my son to wake up at 6.30 and put on his clothes and brush his teeth because he's got some breath on him and I don't know where it came from, but he needs them brushed. I don't particularly enjoy those things. I don't get a lot out of it personally. In fact, a lot of times it's hard work. Some days it's messy work. But I love him and I will sacrifice for him or else someday he will pay a big price for not knowing these things. If you really love somebody, if you really love somebody, especially if you love broken people, people that aren't all put together like you are. If you really want to show love to them, at some point you have to be willing to let some of your niceness and your comfort aside and take on some of their challenge and their struggle before you can really love them. All true love involves some type of substitute exchange whereby you're willing to put something of you aside in order to get yourself a little bit out of your zone and sometimes a little dirty and a little down on your knees and a little bit in their world in order to experience that. There's probably a thousand examples of that in your own life that you might not have even seen yet. That's what Jesus is trying to show to us. So Jesus tells us why he lives a sinless life and why he must prepare himself to die. It's because he's our substitute. 
Divine justice will come down, and it's coming to all of us at some point. You know, the, there's, oh man, I can't go there today. But anyway, we will talk about that soon. But it'll come down to all of us, and those who take shelter under the blood of Jesus will be saved. They will be, in all reality, passed over. So what does Jesus do next? He holds out the bread, and he says, take it and eat it. This is my body. So I have to ask. It's there. I have to ask. This is our last question today. It's in your notes. It's already written for you. What does it mean to take and to eat Jesus? We have to just at least ask the question because it's in there. He says, take and eat. This is my body. Now, if that means what it means on on face value, then we have advocated cannibalism, which is not at all what this means because it's in contradiction to God's word. It must mean something else. What exactly does it mean? I, I, will, I will take a swing at this answer. Tim Keller didn't help me at all at this one, so I'm on my own. But it means to actively and necessarily receive Jesus into our innermost person so that he becomes part of us. Now that word take in the New Testament is also translated a lot, uh, the word receive. Now recently I had a, I had a pretty pretty nasty infection in my face that was spreading and it was going up towards my brain and it was this and that and the other thing. And I went to the doctor and the doctor said, listen, you know, I know this looks really nasty right now, but no problem. I'm going to write you a prescription for Bactrim and I want you to go home and you take these. And he just gives me the thing and he says, just go home and take these. And you know what I did? I went home and I received them. I took the pill, I put it in my mouth, I swallowed it and the infection went away. When a doctor says to you, take this, He's not going to hold your mouth open, put the pill in your mouth, close it down, make you swallow it, shake your head until it goes down in there, and then stand there and shake you real fast until it metabolizes into your system. He's going to give you the instruction, and then it's up to you to do the action of it. Jesus is saying to his disciples, when he holds out the bread in his hand, what he's saying is, receive this piece of bread. Let it come into your hand. He's saying, take this. To the point where it was taken, it was in Jesus' hand. It belonged to him. He blessed it. He broke it. He handed it out saying, take, take, take. And they did. And the moment they received that little piece of bread, the ownership transferred. And it became theirs. Friend, this is how you receive from Jesus. Jesus stands here this morning with his arms open wide saying, if you need a savior, take me. Take me. Here I am. You need health. You need encouragement. You need answers. You need deliverance. Here I am. Take me. And he holds himself out. But until you take him, nothing happens. He's saying, take, take and receive. This is how we get blessings from God. Now, I don't want to get real way off into the prosperity. I talked about that a couple weeks ago, so so don't go through that. But at the end of the day, Jesus says, I have blessings for you. He doesn't force them on you. We don't make them. We don't earn them. We receive them. We take them. He says, here is a blessing for you. Here is what I have for you. I have healing. I have strength. I have power. I have wisdom for you. Will God just force it into me against my will even though I don't want it? That's not our God. He says, take, receive, receive who I am. No disciple at the table says, well, you know what? Uh, I better not. Yeah, there's there's something fishy going on here. No disciple said that. Nobody said Though perhaps everybody felt, uh, I'm, I'm undeserving. I don't deserve to eat of his body. I don't deserve to take and receive. Look, if you're in a financial crisis and someone just comes up to you and says, I want to bless you with $100, take it. 
if I were in that situation, and I have been, and someone comes up to bless me, you know, I felt like sometimes, oh, I don't deserve it. I really shouldn't. If you desperately need something, and God's trying to give it to you for free on top of that, take it! Take it! I'm so discouraged. I just wish God would just... I'm just so discouraged. And then someone comes along and compliments you. Oh, I'm really not all those things you just said. I really better not receive that. Take it. Take it. Well, pastor, you know, if if I I, I am in a financial bind and if someone came and blessed me, I just just couldn't receive it. Don't stand. Look, if someone comes and tries to bless you, don't stand there and say, you know, I think random acts of charity are wrong. You haven't even investigated my credibility. You haven't checked out my story. You don't know if I'm really unemployed. You don't know if my refrigerator is really broken. You haven't looked into it. You know, you really should do your due diligence before you come and help me. Listen, if something you need is freely presented to you, then freely take it. If something you need is freely presented to you, why on earth would you not freely take it? I can come up with an answer. Pride. Because the thing we need more than anything else is salvation, and it is freely presented to you. You do not have to earn it. You do not have to buy it. You do not have to maintain it with good behavior. It didn't take good behavior to get it. It doesn't take good behavior to keep it. It is freely presented to you by Jesus Christ. He's just standing here today and saying, I am the Savior. I am salvation. Take me. Receive me. How marvelous is the grace of God freely presented to you and me. Jesus says, here's my grace. Take it. Receive it. If we truly have a desire for our salvation, for our own spiritual good, we would do well to say, yes, Lord, if you freely give, I without question will freely take. I doubt Jesus stood next to Peter for half an hour and said, take and eat. Peter, for half an hour. You know what I bet happened? He says, take and eat, and he took it, and he ate. And he says to James, take and eat. And he says to John, take and eat. He says to Bartholomew, take and eat. And they immediately took it, and they ate it. They didn't delay. Isn't there such an awesome blessing when God says, here is something I want you to receive, and we receive it right away. We don't spin our wheels for the next six months. Have you ever done that? Like God's been telling you this for one year, two years, three years, and you would never take this advice. You'd never take his counsel. You'd never take his, and you put all this stuff on your shoulders. When Jesus says, take and eat, it's something to be done immediately. It's, it's, we we're supposed to accept Jesus and his grace as soon as we hear about it. And I'm sure there's some of you thinking, especially those of you that, that, that might have more of a skeptical bent to your nature, and you're trying to figure all this Christianity stuff out. And here's a pastor saying, here's what you really need. You need Jesus, and what you have to do is you have to receive him. You don't have to buy him, earn him. You don't have to go through a 10-step class. You don't have to give X amount on the offering. You don't have to be at our church for six weeks. You just accept him and you receive him. And you're saying to me, and you're thinking, like, really? Is that all there is to accepting Jesus? I'm this broken person who's got issues. And you're just telling me that all I have to do to have Jesus in the center of my life, to accept him, I just have to take him? I just have to receive him? Yes! That's all you have to do. Do you really need a savior? Then take him. Do you need to be delivered from the controlling power of sin? Then take him to do it. 
Do you need to live a godly, holy life that echoes the very essence of Jesus himself? Then take him. He is as free as your next breath. It costs you no more to breathe the air than it does to receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you might be thinking, how can such a broken, undeserving person like me, with my history, take Jesus Christ in? My friend, that is, in essence, the exact point Jesus was trying to make 12 hours before his death. That is the entirety of the gospel. That broken, messed up people that are riddled with pride, that think we know everything, that are broken and depraved and try and fix ourselves and fail and fix ourselves and fail and are duct taping our lives together. Those are the exact people that Jesus says, just take me in and I will save you. I will transform you and I will make you the person you always wanted to be that you could never be outside of me. That is the gospel. Not that we deserve it, but that he loves loved us enough to leave heaven and come down and get involved in the mess that you and I live in so that he could take our place. That is every bit of the gospel. You don't have to change everything, anything. You let him come in and he will change it all. He will change it all. That's exactly what we're talking about. That's what it means to to take Jesus. But what does eating have to do with Jesus? He doesn't just say take me. He says take and eat. I, eating is such a simple concept. I don't think I really need to illustrate that this morning. Just go home to lunch and you will understand. Three times a day, or if you're me, seven or eight times a day, you're going to do this. Ask any hungry male in the room. They will tell you all you care to know about eating. It's a very, very, very simple concept. Eating, I guess, in its very most basic form is taking into yourself you know, and kids are learning this. Sometimes it doesn't get the whole way in. I saw a picture of Skylar, Skylar and Joel in here. I saw, I saw a picture of Elliot the other day. Just, it looked like a little food got in there, but I mean, it was just, it was just everywhere. So he's, he's still working on this. You know, and I still work on this. My table manners, my wife gets on me about that, but that's another message for another day on marriage and health and fixing me and everything. Um, but, you know, eating is really when we take into ourself the very food set before you. At Echo, we are passionately committed to being and making disciples. It's who we are. It's what we do. And if we're really Christ's disciples, then Jesus is telling us to take him, his work, his personality, his temperament, his moral purity, and take all of those things right into me. So you look at all of Jesus And you say, this is all for me. I take all of you, and I take all of you into me. As we sing, we sing, eat of me. He's saying, take everything that I am and take it into you until it dissolves and becomes absolutely part of you. And I wonder if the great failure of the American church is because we want a Jesus that we don't take all of him into us, and he never becomes part of us, and all we become is a little more sanitized version of a sinful life. We take little parts of Jesus that we like into our life and think that that equips us to judge everyone else when the reality is we don't take part of Jesus. We take all of him. We take him into us so that as we chew and we digest, he becomes part of our flesh and part of our bone. And when life squeezes us, unsanctified Phil doesn't come out, but Christ comes out. Sadly, And I know there's a number of us here this morning that you're spiritually unresolved. You don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can listen into this, but this isn't directed to you. I want to speak to those of us this morning that have a relationship or claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Friend, I want to tell you something. When life squeezes you, if Christ doesn't come out, that's not something that we should be proud of. 
it seems there's this thought stream all over America now. I hear it from preachers, this phrase of, well, you know what, this is just who I really, really am. You just have to kind of deal with that. And they use it to justify sinful behavior that they just say, well, this is just part of my personality. I'm not really someone who likes conflict really well. You just have to kind of accept that. I still kind of like my advice over here. I know I use language that's a little bit crass, but that's kind of who I am. I realize that, you know, if, you know, if I see someone do an injustice to my kid over here, I'm going to lose my lunch on you, and I'm going to just call you every name on the, because that's me being a good parent, and that's just kind of who I am. A thousand times no. The truth of the matter is that that's not Christ. Christ was done more injustices than everybody else. And while the people who were murdering him were murdering him, he said, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, here's what happens. When you take Jesus into you, you say, I want my identity not to be rooted in Phil anymore. I want my identity and who I am to be rooted in Christ. I want people to know me and I want to know myself in Christ, not apart from Christ. But what happens is when you said, well, you know, uh, I, you know I, I realize I'm a little impatient and I'm just not someone who's going to be punctual and I'm going to be somebody who just kind of loses my thing. You know, I've got a bad temper. That's just kind of me. That's my thing. What you're saying is my identity is not rooted in Christ. My identity is rooted in unsaved me. Because these are all the parts of your life that Jesus wants to come in and change. So that when someone does an injustice to your kid, you can deal with it, but you can deal with it in a godly way. So that's when someone cuts you off in traffic, you got your echo car magnet on the back. But you see, we make all kinds of exceptions for sinful behavior when we feel like it's justified because that's the way the rest of the world does it. We all think we know better. And then when we're confronted with it, we say, well, that's okay because that was me just being a good parent or this person stepped on this. This is just my issue. And when you get close to my issue, I'm just going to, you know, you should just understand because that's kind of my hot button issue. Did Jesus carry himself (laughs) that way? Or are you saying, you know, I want part of Jesus and let him control that part of my life. But then I also want to be, you know, I want to be kind of this, this person that's split down the middle. These parts are under the blood of Jesus and these parts are just kind of me. When we take Jesus in, He comes into all of us. The way you handle conflict, the way you treat people you like and you don't like, the way you handle people when they treat your kids or your siblings or your spouse or your friends unfairly, what you say about your leaders. We don't get an excuse to say that's just who I am. No, that's just who I was. But who I am is bought and redeemed and transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I expect more out of me because he is those things. And when we take and we eat of Jesus, that what he's really saying is, I, want, I don't want you to just take me. I want you to take me into you and let me get the whole way down deep inside of you so that I gradually become part of your bones and part of your flesh, flesh and part of your thoughts. Eating requires us to chew. We do this over and over so that the flavors are discerned and the food can be properly digested. Taking Jesus into ourselves requires us to think deeply and often about everything that he is and his work in our lives. We have to read and study and reflect and inwardly digest the truth of the Bible. How can you take Jesus into you if you have no idea what he's ever written to you in his word? How can you think deeply about who he is and what it really means to be saved and how we can still have sinful thoughts and be saved and progressing in our relationship with Jesus? How can you have any spiritual growth whatsoever? How can you be a disciple of Jesus if you never, ever, ever take any time to read the Bible? Well, I'm just not a reader. That's the same problem. Take Jesus into you. Well, I just don't, you know, I've never really liked to read. Take Jesus into you. 
and let him transform that part of your life. Find a way. If you get to know Jesus and you taste of him, you're going to want more. And the place to go is through his word. We have to think and study deeply about this. I look at people who are stunted in their growth spiritually. And 99 times out of 100, those people are not taking any time to think deeply about what's in the Word. Take Him into you and study it deeply. Here's the other thing. You cannot separate me from what I ate yesterday. It's become a part of me. It has been eaten. It's been chewed. It's been swallowed. It's been digested. And now it's being absorbed in my very bones, my flesh. It has become part of me. Here's this cool thing. I heard a story. I read an old story of a priest who took away a New Testament from a little Irish boy. And the Irish boy looks at the priest and he says, there's 10 chapters of that you can't take away from me. The priest says, why not? He says, because I've learned them by memory. You think about that. I don't want to be too prophetic. But there may come a day and a time where part of what we enjoy in our liberties as Christians in this country change. My question is, do you have enough of Jesus in you that if you're separated from some of those things, that it still stays inside of you? Or do you depend so much on other people shoving food and shoving food and shoving food and shoving food into your mouth and hoping some of it sticks? You're depending on somebody else rather than the word of God being wrapped deeply and interwoven so it's part of who you are. There are people on other places of the world right now who are literally being beheaded and dying because of this very book. There are people who are losing their life today because of this, so that you and I can have it. Doesn't that make it worth at least enough for us to get back into this again? For our answers, for our solution, for our growth, for our development? Jesus says, take me and eat me. Let me come so far deep down inside of you that I become very much of the part who you really are. I worry, I worry, Because I feel that the church in some ways is getting so lazy when it comes to our spiritual development. We think that getting saved and growing in Jesus is like an escalator. I do nothing. I'll show up to church and the church will do all the work. The pastor will do all the work. That's never what this is meant to be. Jesus said, take me and let me go deep inside of you so that who I am becomes very part of your bones and your flesh and your thoughts and your behaviors. That when you are squeezed in life, that it's not your issues that come out, but it's Christ that comes out. I want to invite you again to think about what it means here in a moment. Invite the worship team to come. Chris and the team can come back and our, those who are getting ready to serve. We're going to come to the communion table of the Lord together. In just a moment, we're going to receive communion together today. I realize that many of us have come from different religious backgrounds, different church experiences. Some of you have taken communion many times before in your life. Maybe not the way that we do it here at Echo. I don't want to say that there's only one right way to do communion. If you read the Bible, there's probably a couple wrong ways to take communion. But I think that there's some, there's some room in the Bible for different different places to take communion different ways i don't think there's any problem with that bible does say something we're supposed to do regularly it doesn't tell us how frequently and we kind of get all weirded out by that we want the bible to give us absolutes and when it doesn't we make up our own absolutes and then we decide our absolutes are right and if someone else does it the other way then they must be wrong look it just says regularly so i always balance it out as a pastor how often is too often to do communion that we lose the meaning of what it is but too infrequent that we don't celebrate it enough I I don't know where to land on that give me another 50 years to figure it out I might get closer but it's important but I want you to understand that this is something that the Bible tells us very clearly in the New Testament the Apostle Paul tells us we should do this continue to do this until Jesus comes because at that point we won't need to 
keep his memory alive until he comes to get us, we'll be with him. We won't need this anymore. We'll have him. But as we get ready to receive communion this morning, the Bible does say we're supposed to examine our own hearts and think about some things. So if I could, I'd like us just to pause for a moment before they pass out the community, the communion elements. Would you just bow your head and close your eyes right in your seat? Nothing rocket science in today's message. Something we need to talk about every now and again, but understanding that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. He died in our place. So really my question is, is this this morning, have you ever taken Jesus? Have you ever received him? I mean, really received him. Really said, I need him. I need, (laughs) I am guilty of breaking God's moral law. I've broken it lots of times, sometimes knowingly, sometimes in complete ignorance. And every single time I broke it, it brought with it a penalty of death. And I only have one life to give. I am incapable of even paying my own penalty, even if I wanted to. So I recognize I need to be rescued. And just like the song says, I will, I need to take hold of something or somebody. And Jesus says, I am here. I am the lamb. I have taken away the sin of the world. I am your savior. Will you take me? Will you receive me? That's my question to you this morning, my friend. I hope, I hope, I pray, Pastor Stewart and Pastor Brian and Grant and I stood this morning at 930 and we prayed, God, please somehow draw some people here today that don't know you, that have never received you. So friend, if you came here today and you're sitting in your seat right now, you're wrestling with it, you say, I don't know if I've ever really received Jesus. Maybe this is just a mission. It's not coincidence. We were praying for you this morning. I will tell you, from the day you were formed in your mother's womb, the Bible tells me God knew you'd be here today in this moment, hearing this appeal right now. The only thing I'm asking you is, will you receive him? Will you just receive him? Without excuses, without defending yourself, will you just receive the gift of salvation today? If you'll say yes, yes, I'll receive him. Tell me what I need to do. Here's what you need to do. Pray a simple prayer just like this. Dear Jesus, I confess to you. I admit to you. I need you. I have sinned. I've broken. God, I've broken your moral law. Today, I accept that. But I also accept the payment of Jesus Christ for all of my sins. Jesus, I invite you into me. I invite you to become part of me. And I need your help to be the person I know I can be in you. Because apart from you, I'm failing. I choose you as my Lord. I receive you as my Savior. I will follow you. Amen. Now, with everybody's head up and everybody's eyes open, listen. How many of you remember, do you remember where you were, some of you, when you prayed that prayer? How many of you can say, I actually remember where I was the first time I prayed that prayer? A couple of us. I do. And if you prayed that prayer for the first time today, you're probably feeling something right now. Very unusual. That you might have an analogy for you, because I kind of feel like this, but I don't know if it's exactly this. That's Jesus living inside of you. That's all of heaven celebrating because that you made that prayer day. All of the work it takes to do church today and the people that invited you, it's all worth it because of that decision.